0: Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. Well, glad to be back after a long-needed and really enjoyed hiatus here in the summertime uh, up in Alaska, and bringing to you today a fantastic podcast with my friend Linda Bankin. Linda is a fellow in Salmon Nation. She is an ocean warrior. She's a recipient of the Heinz Award, which we talk about. It's pretty incredible. So listen on and. She's also an incredible fisherman and citizen scientist. She has amassed a collection of data points that have done incredible research on reducing bycatch and plotting out the bottom in Southeast Alaska to aid fishermen and scientists. Okay, so if you are enjoying this show, consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. And writing a review in your own words, that also helps. And if you want to read all about the vacation and uh, trip to Alaska I just had with my wife, Venka, it was outstanding, and we had some really cool adventures, head on over to avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com, and click on Connect. Fill in your information real quick, and you will be on the newsletter list. Thanks so much for being a part of this community, and enjoy the show. How do you say? down. How do you say what you love? You're getting tough. Linda Bankin, welcome.
1: <laughs> Mark, great to see you. <laughs>
0: you too. Where are you coming to us from today?
1: I'm in I'm in Sitka or Clink
0: I know this place. It is gorgeous. I think it's one of the most beautiful places on Earth, and I can't wait to return and see you, and I hope very soon. Um, How is fishing compared to a year ago from today?
1: Well, actually, fishing has been very good. Fishing was good last year, too. Prices were terrible last year because of COVID shutting down restaurants because of tariffs, just sort of uh, the whole pandemic thing. Um, and prices have come back this year. Some some species, like the um, troll salmon species, the prices are quite strong, probably some of the strongest we've ever seen. So, yeah, feeling a little bit better that way this year.
0: That's good. I, I know it was a, a, a severe challenge for a lot of people, uh, especially for... Small family fishermen, and um, and it feels like things are emerging, and that that is a that's a good place to be, I think.
1: Yes, yeah, no, definitely, uh, some sense of recovery from the pandemic, and some optimism about markets, and just more more people paying attention to how their fish was caught, and wanting to know that it was caught sustainably, um, and looking for small-scale, you know, community sportive fishery programs. So that's all positive.
0: Totally agree. Uh, that's that's definitely what I'm observing and hearing, and um, it's becoming not just something of a curiosity, but something that man, people are mandating. We, yeah. we want to know where our fish, where our food is coming from, and I think that's going to help everything down the line. All right, so we we got so much to jump into today, um, but I'm going to start with this. There was a film earlier this year that lumped together all commercial fishing into one harmful brailler bag. Here's something you wrote about your experience as a fisherman, and I'm going to quote you here. Small-scale fisheries support a way of life that has become increasingly rare in our industrialized world, a way of life that is inexorably tied to the natural world, where individuals Face forces far greater than human power and thrive only through humility and a keen awareness of natural rhythms. The humility instilled by working from a small boat on a big ocean offers humanity a path back to a way of life in balance with natural systems, a lesson industrialized countries must learn before the systems fail. Climate change, ocean acidification, these are the symptoms of a failing system. Small-scale fishermen bear witness to faltering ocean health and serve as essential storytellers for the ocean. Small-scale fishermen are uniquely positioned to alert humanity to the destruction driven by human greed and arrogance. They are also essential leaders in the immediate struggle to redefine our relationship with the world around us. Wow, that hit my heart in the solar plexus. Uh, Wow. Um, With that as a backdrop... Tell us your story. How did you come into this work you do and what keeps you going?
1: Let's see. So I definitely, you know, I fell in love with, well, I think sort of grew up loving wild places and feeling a real sense of responsibility to take care of them and give back. Um, When I first came to Alaska and started fishing, I was not only blown away by by the beauty of this place, but also felt so taken in by the fishing community and wanted to be a part of both those things, this, this incredible place in a deep way. And also this community of people with this, this tight connection to this place. Um, But very quickly, you start to see the threats to that way of life and the stress in the environment from different, I I guess for me first, it was seeing industrial trawling and the impact it was having on the way of life and our, our sense of what... The ocean needed to be healthy. Um, And so that was sort of my first. um, When I said, okay, I'll take over running the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association, I said, I'll do it as long as you guys are all with me to try and close this area to, to trawling. I don't think it's compatible with our with ocean health or with our communities. Um, So that was my first sort of deep dive. And then that led into being very involved in fisheries management on a lot of different levels and um, doing all I could to help give a voice or help people find their voice that really cared deeply about place and about the health of the ocean and food systems more, more generally.
0: So for us, in the audience here who don't know what trawler fishing is, uh, can you give us kind of a, a big picture of what we're looking at with these different types, types of gear and different methods of fishing?
1: Sure, yeah, so the kind of fishing that that I do is is hook and line, um, and actually 80% of the boats working off of Alaska are under 60 feet, family run. Um, Seining uses a net, but it's uh, on very, uh, and gill nets the same, but it's on schools of salmon. As they're entering streams, you're not catching much of anything other than your target species it's very confined by area with with tight management of the fish going up the streams making sure we have enough fish going up to feed the next generation um before fishing is allowed to take its share um the I am fishing more on the open ocean with hook and line, as are other um, longliners or trollers, which is the T R O L L kind of um, fishing. Uh, trawling is with a huge net. The, the factory boats are using that big enough to hold multiple 747s um, and it's it's also well open ocean some kinds of trawling are hard on bottom um, sort of tremendous numbers of, of fish caught at a time and it can be a real mixture of Mostly one kind of species, but also taking salmon or, or halibut or black cod or fish that are important to um, our small-scale fisheries. That's considered bycatch. It's generally not retained, um, thrown back over, but very high mortality, so thrown back over dead. And um, at this point, placing stress on those, those other fish, but also on the fisheries and the communities that depend on those fish.
0: So um, tell me a little bit more about uh, Alaska Longliner Fishermen's Association and this, a trawling band that you helped create in southeast
1: Alaska. So we um... – I think there had been a long history of people here being very worried about trawling. There had been foreign trawlers operating off the coast of Alaska um, before my time here, so sort of 70s, 80s, with a huge impact on... Local resources. So big overfishing of rockfish um, drove down sablefish or black cod stocks, big impacts. And then in um, the late 70s, as the Magnuson Act started to reallocate fisheries to um, the U.S., there was a lot of money put in by our federal government into building a U.S. fleet with a lot of money going into building a U.S. trawl fleet um, that sort of took the place of those those foreign boats fishing off here. And what I witnessed, you know, working as a, on a as crew on small boats, if when a trawler came through the area, we wouldn't find fish in those areas for quite a while, take a while to recover. And often we could tell that there'd been impacts on the um, bottom habitat so one year 1991 one trawler came through this area on their way to the Bering Sea they dropped their net just to make sure everything worked basically on their way passing through here to do a couple toes and in those couple toes took enough of one species of rockfish to close down our local fishery for the remainder of the year um, and also sort of threaten that it It could also have impacts or close down our halibut fishery. So we, the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association, we asked for an emergency closure of this area to trawling while we worked on a more permanent trawl ban. And we were granted the emergency trawl closure. We started working on the trawl ban um, with our arguments being very much resource-based, just concerned about the impact on the habitat here. Southeast Alaska has a high abundance of, of deepwater corals, for example, and sponges and sort of patchily distributed, but very easily destroyed, so growing a millimeter to a centimeter a year, and you can imagine, you know, dragging heavy chains and and, um, steel doors through there that that just levels it. So we were were saying we're worried about habitat, we're worried about the marine mammals, so we'd already started seeing declines in sea lions, for example, um, and worried about the impacts on our our fish stocks and the ability of fishery managers to manage sustainably with such an industrial um, fishery in the area. Um, and that triggered a lot of pushback from the managers <laughs> and from the trawl industry. And they um, fought it hard. They went after my credibility as a way to try and defeat it. It was a fairly brutal introduction to fisheries management at that scale. And we lost at the at the council level on the permanent ban. Um, and, you know, people said, you'll never win this. Sort of, you're up against, you know, the mighty And uh, I guess, you know, I just wasn't willing to give up and neither were a lot of the people I worked with. So at that point, we really started building a strong, we had time on our hands, you know, sort of, we'd lost. So what are we going to do now? So we just started reaching out to all the coastal communities. The Alaska legislature passed a resolution supporting a ban in Southeast 22 communities passed resolutions supporting a ban and saying it's just not compatible with our local fish with our local communities, our local economies. And we um, took it back to the council as part of a, a little bit a different take on it. So rather than arguing the resource, we argued the social economics. And um, we were successful the second time around, but it took another six years. So it was a long process. Uh, to you know, push it back through the council system to build all that coalition and community support, and then get it all the way through Washington D.C. Um, and implemented here in Alaska. At the time, it was the largest trawl closure in the world, so it really was a big um, sort of pre- precedent-setting effort.
0: That's incredible, Linda. I, I, you've done so many things uh, that I am so deeply impressed by, and but that is. Massive. I mean, it is a David and Goliath kind of thing when you're describing to me chains and large steel doors and gear that can house 747s. I mean, that sounds to me like, you know, fishing with a sledgehammer versus, and and I think that's unfortunately what this film earlier this year, Sea Spiracy did was sort of lump everything all in together that I, if you're a fisherman, you are taking part in raping the sea and that's just not true and what it sounds like to me is that the type of fishing that coastal communities are involved in certainly that you're involved in is more like fishing with a scalpel and and trying to be aware of the systems that you are a part of is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think so, and I think if people, uh, the analogy that's harder, it's easier for people to wrap their head around, is small scale farming where people are raising a mix of different vegetables. They're probably bringing some animals in. They're using manure from the animals to fertilize the gardens. So it's a system that's self sustaining, and in a lot of cases, you can be rebuilding the health of your soil rather than depleting it. Versus, you know, a kind of farming that it's miles and miles of monoculture where you have to kill all the pests with chemicals and that depletes the soil and poisons your water system. So that it, it, there's ways to do farming. There's ways to fish that support the ecosystem, that bring people into balance, and there's ways to not do it. And um, I think each ecosystem deserves or and demands a level of understanding to be able to practice our extraction and our harvesting and our, our growing in a way that is compatible with that health, the health of that particular ecosystem. And certainly that's going to change over time. I mean, right now we're seeing the stress of climate change on salmon species, um, we see warming rivers and so fish are dying before they can spawn. So, you know, we have to be responsive to those changes. We also have to do something about climate change. But I think it just takes this sort of this humility to understand the systems and to recognize we have to work within their limits rather than impose our greed and, um, you know, wants on the systems themselves.
0: That's what I love about the article you wrote. And by the way, folks, we will be linking to that in our show notes um, and on the site. Uh, it's just a, it, it is a, a piece of humility. It is um, also, I think, as you very adroitly put that um, you are working in balance with natural systems. You have to have patience. You bear witness to these things. You do it day in and day out. Um, that's what. I think sometimes folks don't understand. I, I've certainly learned as I've gone along too that, you know, it's the people that are the hunters and the fishermen and the um, folks on the ground every single day that have the this vast source of data because they're there, you're there every day. Um, so I, I definitely recommend folks uh, check out the article that Linda wrote uh, on our site. Um, we're going to push forward a little bit here, and I know what a genuinely humble person you are, and I also further know you wouldn't make a big deal about this. So I'm going to. <laughs> you won a Heinz Award for your life work in the environment. That's a really big deal, and um, here's what Teresa Heinz, chairman of the Heinz Family Foundation, said: "Quote, Linda's success in achieving collaboration between scientists." industry and the fishermen who work the ocean for their livelihood is a model for effective environmental change her efforts to drive policy and practices that protect the stability of alaska's coastal fishing communities and the ocean ecosystem on which they depend not only give us hope they demonstrate what is possible when seemingly competing interests work together what was it like when you got the call that you were to receive this award last year in
1: 2020 (laughs) well of course, my I was afraid they had the wrong number or they had the wrong person. <laughs> I yeah, I was really shocked. I mean, I guess they had spent quite a while doing research they always do. They vet everybody, but I had absolutely no idea. So people had really kept their kept their secrets that had been asked um you know, to be part of that fact-checking. So, yes, I was completely surprised and definitely um It was very uh, humbling, Uh, yeah, just feeling like certainly there's a mistake here, um, but also super exciting to have the work recognized and to be able to have that sort of megaphone for small-scale fishermen and talk about what the fishermen do that you know that I work with so they're they're involved not only in fisheries management but also in research and helping to create the tools that make their fishing practices better and better for the environment as well as make you know, m- them more successful at what they're doing, recognizing that those two can go together. If they aren't competing interests, they have to go together. If you're not keeping the resource healthy, you won't have a healthy fishery. So, um, I mean, I guess my sense is that award certainly isn't all about me. There's been, I work with an amazing team of staff, uh, co-workers, as well as fishermen who are, you um, you know, what? Uh, deserve all the recognition.
0: Well, let, let's be clear. You, you deserve a bunch, um, and um, I know, you know, it comes with a beautiful, beautiful, uh, kind of a staggering price, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And what I know about you is that you're a reinvestor. I, I know that um, first of all, that prize has no strings attached. It's it's designed to continue you enable you to continue to do the work that you're doing. But um two thoughts here. Can you number one tell me a little bit more about sort of this reinvestment idea? When, once you really got things going um, you know, with with the work, the main scale work that you're doing with uh ALFA, and you also got involved in a trust and uh further education and further entry for young people into the world of fishing. So that first thought is. Can you tell us a little bit more about reinvesting in the fishery itself? And then the second part is to um, Ms. Hines' uh, quote about you receiving this prize, um, you demonstrate what is possible when seemingly competing interests work together. So that'll be the second thought, and we'll come to that in a second. But first, more on this this reinvestment. Um, Why do you feel like it's super important to – continue forward with reinvesting in in these initiatives that you are championing?
1: I think it's important on uh, a number of levels. And I think about the Indigenous uh, wisdom of seventh generation and, and that everything we do, we have to think about how this will affect the seventh generations from now. And if we're not restoring the health of the resource safeguarding the health of resources then there won't be the same abundance for that you know next generation or seven generations from now that we've had the you know the wonder and the ability to enjoy and and to sustain us and our families so i I feel that responsibility applies to everyone on this planet and um It's something that feels very... Natural and uh, gratifying to be giving back in that way, and I certainly the people I work with, the fishermen, you know, share that they want to hand that on the same healthy ocean off to their kids that they've enjoyed, or their grandkids if they're on starting to enter the fisheries. And so we've been able to involve fishermen in, um, yeah, in the in research and in developing these tools to. Take care of the oceans, so improve stewardship of fisheries and oceans, and get them working with scientists where the two sides uh, and f- learn a lot from each other. And it's it's always a great conversation, and they each recognize what each other um, bring to the table and what each other know and how they can collaborate in ways that, that – you know, the, the two parts are better than, as make a hole that's better than either part could be on its own. So um, that's always been a big part of our work and a big part of the fishermen's work. But I also see how much more challenging it is now for young people to get into the fishery. Just the costs of entering fisheries are higher, the complexity of the management, the regulations, um it's a bit daunting and you know you have to you generally have to borrow money you have to know how to run a business you have to know hydraulics you have to know mechanics um you have to uh, be understand navigation and how to be safe at sea and you know and then you also have to know how to catch fish if you're going to be able to be successful so it's it's a lot and um You know, when I got started, you could, it was easier to find that startup job. And it was also a lot less expensive to get a little boat together and just go out and try it, you know, and learn as you went without a huge amount of debt. So we've just, we've started a lot of programs, including this fisheries trust to help people make that first step without taking on, you know, helping to lower the risk and lowering that entry level cost um, by helping them buy into the fisheries and mentoring them along the way. Um, we have a crew apprentice program that, hey, people get out on the water for the first time and work as crew on a commercial fishing boat in, a, in an environment that we know is safe and really sort of focused on safety and, and learning um, while still being, you know, a harvesting opportunity uh, and get their feet wet in that way and see if it's for them for one thing, um, but also support them in that and make sure it's safe. And, um, you know, we've had mm, 20 six, tw- I think maybe 28 at this point, young women who have tried fishing in that way. And um, yeah, I feel really good about providing that opportunity. Um, but yeah, I did also take some of um, the money I won from the Heinz Foundation and invest it back into our fisheries trust to help young fishermen as well as the work our work to um, address climate change. Because to me, that's so critical to the future of... Uh, Fishermen now, but particularly the young fishermen and what they, they face in the future.
0: Of course you did. Thank you. You're awesome, Linda. You inspire me and I'm sure you're inspiring a bunch of people that are listening to this right now. I wish, you know, I wish there had been more visibility about things like this Uh, when I was younger. um, I just sort of dumbly stumbled into the um, Bristol Bay processing world. Um, And, you know, I thought about, you know, getting into the fishery up there, but I had, I was absolutely clueless and sort of uh, completely daunted by it, you know, and, um, it's just such a tremendous service to offer these kinds of skills and entry points, most importantly for, for young people. So good on you. Um, coming to the second point here, um, we are living in this very polarized moment in this country for sure. And it seems like it's impossible to get things done with any kind of consensus or with any kind of cooperation. So um, when you are looking at bringing together competing interests, what are the touch points that you're looking for? What are the really important things that you try to focus on to get things done where you know there's going to be friction? And, and how do you try to bring everybody and ensure that they have a place at the table?
1: Well, I think um, part of it is recognizing everybody has a valid perspective. So being a good listener and um, va- validating that people do bring those different perspectives to the table and we all need to listen to that. Um but I think fishing is this great uh, equalizer or great way of finding that middle ground between people because it isn't an um, environmental group and it isn't a you know far right group. It's it's a whole range of political interests who have a shared common interest in making a living from the sea and wanting to be able to continue to do that. And so sometimes you have to help some people understand that it's valid to make a living working on the ocean and other people understand you won't have a future if you don't take care of the ocean. So it's, you know, it's finding that middle ground, helping them realize that they really have the same shared interests. Uh, we we always talk about okay what, you know what's the common problem we're all trying why are we here you know what what are we trying to address what do we see as as the as the challenge we're up against and making sure we can we all have the same we're all working towards the same goal um, by identifying what that common problem is and that everybody's willing to listen to each other um, and really hear each other and then work towards solving. That problem that we've identified, um, and I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm I'm particularly good at doing any of that. It's just the, um, you know, when when you keep doing it long enough and you care enough. <laughs> Sometimes you get it right, I guess, but yeah, I just find fishermen to generally be people who have, who care a lot, who've thought a lot, you know, you're out on the water, have you a lot of time to be thinking and paying attention to what's going on, um, and if you give them room to voice their deepest, what's in their heart, they're, they're coming at it from the right place, and there's an opening there to work towards a better future.
0: Well, I think you nailed it with the care about it piece. And, you know, that's kind of what this whole show is about, saving what you love. And we'll we'll dig specifically into that here uh, toward the end of the show. But um, for a moment, I would like to dig even a little bit deeper in the work that you've done so far in Southeast Alaska. And can you tell us a little bit about how innovation and technology have been a part of how you have approached conservation and uh, a sustainable thriving fishery.
1: Yeah, well, we you know again, say so we have fishermen in our um membership who are super tech savvy and um when when we started to look at what it takes to keep our fisheries viable, how we can make sure once we push trawling out of here, how do we be the best stewards of our area? So how do we address our own bycatch fisheries where we're catching say rockfish that are super long lived and if you overfish them, they're very slow to recover. Um, It became clear to us, we needed to help fishermen work together to identify areas with high rockfish abundance so they could avoid them. And especially when a new fisherman comes in, you don't want them to stumble onto a reef and do any damage, lose gear or catch too many rockfish. So let's figure out to have fishermen sharing information so they're informing each other and especially helping the young people come in. So we started with a uh, rockfish bycatch program where fishermen were reporting to us their their catch of their target and their bycatch. And then we're sharing that information, flagging for people the hotspots. And at the same time, we, we had fishermen who were starting to play with software, um, Nobletech Time Zero software that maps the seafloor as they're fishing. And we saw the possibility to take the data from multiple fishermen, just as we were with this logbook data and fishing information, get that bathymetry data, compile it from multiple fishermen and give it back and help our fleet have the same level of of detail and what the seafloor looks like, as you know, someone who's got a multi-million-dollar sort of boat with sonars and fancier equipment than our fleet could afford. So that's what we started. And at first, the software crashed when we tried to put more than a few boats' worth of data together, because it's built for recreational boaters who use their boats a couple of weekends a year, whereas our fleet is out there all but a couple of weekends a year, um, and you know, kept collecting millions of data points. Uh, but we worked with the noble tech people and they kept improving their software with our input and at this point our fishermen our members have the best seafloor maps um Anybody has, we share them back now to the scientists when they're doing their stock assessment surveys to help them know what habitat they're fishing in and and, uh, just inform the science. So it's been super positive and it's really helped our fishermen be more efficient at catching their target species, but also stay out of the, the habitat Rockfish, for example, are, are in rough bottom, pinnacles, um, sort of that rocky habitat, and to be able to fish near that, because they can pinpoint exactly where it is without setting through it, and so really control their bycatch rates. Um, so yeah, a win for the environment, and certainly a win for the fishermen.
0: I remember you showing me the, the charts uh, when we were together in Sitka last, and uh, I'm a chart geek anyways, and uh, man, I could sit and look at that thing for a week and I, th- there's a few images and a few thoughts that that come to mind when you're talking about this. One is like a mycelial network where yes. trees are connected and by fungal uh, connectors where they're everything in the forest actually knows what's going on and they're actually helping each other. They're, you know, they're bringing sugar over to uh, a tree that might be hurting over here, or they're, you know, um, telling another tree over there that there's a, a, a beetle infestation that's uh, on the way. And I mean, for all the world, that's what this sounds like. You guys are on the ground every day. So why wouldn't you gather that data and then share it with the rest of your your fleet? And everybody benefits, including the scientists who, you know, frankly, there's, there's not as many of them out there as there are of, of your folks, your fishermen. So what a, what a cool network that you've created with that. Are there other types of uh, technology or other things that you've deployed that have helped out the fleet in a similar way?
1: Yeah, well, I guess the other one um... – would be electronic monitoring so uh, but you know part of the science of fisheries management is knowing how many fish are in the sea and the other part is knowing how many are taken out of the sea um, so that we're sustainably balancing those two and um, our boats are quite small and there's really not room to have a scientist on board all the time or an observer recording what's being caught Uh, but the federal fishery managers decided they needed that data and they were going to try and. Rip- require all boats to carry um, an observer, which really would have, it would have cost crew jobs, it would have, it just would have been very unworkable for the small boat fleet. It was like yet another way to break the back of the small boat fleet from our perspective. So we worked, mostly Dan Felvey who works with our group, um, really hard to to develop electronic monitoring as a viable alternative for our fleet by, you know, finding grant money, working with software developers and, um, you know, just sort of saying there's room for a camera overhead but not an observer underfoot. Like we need a technology that works for small boats. We'll get you the data. You tell us what you need. We'll get you the data. But we have to do it in a way that's compatible um, with our fleet and the size of our boats. And that's been very successful. Now boats can opt in to have electronic monitoring instead of an observer. And um, that really wouldn't have happened without our, you know, just pushing and pushing. And also the support, Senator Murkowski was hugely supportive of the effort. She came down and looked at our boats and she said, I got it. You know, there's no room here to add another person. It's not viable to have someone sleep on the floor or not be able to sleep. And so she was very supportive of that um, and our, our efforts to move that through the system.
0: And how's it been working, the electronic monitoring? The technology itself—it
1: works really well. I mean, it was a curve, right? Like at first, mm-hmm. the had too many exposed wires and things shorted out. The marine environment's pretty hard on electronics. Um, but at this point, yeah, our systems are working really well, very reliably.
0: That's that's fantastic. And uh, I've been on your boat, and and yeah, it's hard to imagine carrying a, a totally autonomous extra crew member. Uh, you know, there's just not a lot of room to cook or eat or, you know, all the, all the things. So, um, super innovative. Um, let's move on a little bit here. Um, we are both involved in this idea. Um, it's developing into a network called Salmon Nation. Um, in your words, can you tell me and tell us a little about what you perceive it to be and why you're part of it because you're a big part of it
1: so to me salmon nation is that change that the world needs it's the recognizing that we are part of natural systems that we have to rebalance ourselves within those natural systems and that there is a way to do that that will keep the Salmon healthy, will keep the forest healthy, that will keep the climate healthy, and will keep us healthy as people. And that has to be done in a way that it's informed by Indigenous wisdom of stewardship and connection um, that respects those people who are non Indigenous who have also found that path and are living that path and doing it in a way that um, meets the goals of the seventh generation um, and keeping the planet and the system and the people seven generations from now to have the same opportunities and health and um, beauty that surrounds us here. Uh, and to me, Salmonation gives me hope that, that we can get there. It's connected me to other people who who can articulate all that far better than me and who are living it so deeply, whether they're on the ocean or on a ranch or on a farm or running a grocery store in a food desert. I mean, it, you know, it's from urban settings to very rural settings uh, and supporting each other with ideas, with Um, we can do this sort of, you know, love and moral support. And where, you know, one of us stubs our toe against an obstacle there's someone who can help you figure out how to get around it if you don't have the technical skills or you don't know enough about this there's somebody in the network who can say, oh i can help you there and i'll connect you with this person if i don't know but i know this person does so it's it's powerful and um it's sustaining me and really inspiring me
0: yeah and it comes back to that idea of uh that network, like we were talking about a minute ago with, uh, forest or mycelial network, um, just this last week. Uh, so Monday, uh, was, was my birthday. We were up in Homer and my wife and I, and we got to spend seven days out in Bristol Bay and then down on the Kenai peninsula. And it was absolutely magical. And, um, just sort of, you know, been spending most of my adult life, at least a part of the year in Alaska, and every time I fall harder in love with it, and did did so yet again on the way home. You know, you're going over these vast mountain ranges and and these beautiful islands, and you know there was a time where I would feel I don't know, almost kind of sad about well, gosh, I'll never see it all, or I'll never be able to experience it all, or I'll never be a part of it somehow, and. To your point about salmon nation, like I feel now, I have hope, and I feel connected in a way that I never have before. Knowing that whether I'm in British Columbia or uh, Bristol Bay or uh, Northern California, we are all connected by this kind of heart force yep. of of love for these creatures that give of their lives so that their that life can continue. These salmon. And the thing that defines us is more about this nature state, rather than these other kind of boundaries. invisible, created boundaries that have been, um, you know, pushed on us. So I agree with you, and it, it's you know, let's see how things evolve. Um, but what a what a hopeful way to to live and connect with other people. Um, I know that uh, one of the issues that is prevalent now, uh, is and is going to be even more so in the coming days, is the uh, 30 by 30. And um, for maybe what you could do for us is give us sort of your understanding of the broad definition of, of this ambition, and then we can dig a little bit into the nuance of how that uh, maybe is not a one-size-fits-all solution for fisheries especially in in coastal communities
1: well i think you set that up perfectly with what you were saying about looking out at this vast area and they're, you know, sort of how it gets you in the heart and wanting, not knowing how you take it all in and, and connect with all of it and make sure across all these boundaries that we are taking care of it that from mountains to oceans. And to me, that's really the possibility of 30 by 30. And to me, 30 by 30 is at the heart and soul of what Salmon Nation is all about. And it, when it was first introduced, it was introduced with the idea that we had to protect 30% of the oceans and lands, lands and waters, I think is how it's worded, but, you know, almost protect it from humans. So that we needed to set this aside as it, because that's the only way we're going to, Address climate change and that we're going to preserve biodiversity. And I, you know, I get it. Humans have a huge footprint on this earth, and I'm all for having places where we lessen that footprint and allow other creatures to not be under our you know heel. But I think more importantly, it's and as 30 by 30 evolved through input and and the eventual um, executive order that came out of President Biden's administration. It's now much more about recognizing that we need to learn to live within planetary boundaries in how we live, how we harvest, how we fish, how we farm. And that while we're addressing climate change and while we're protecting biodiversity, we also have to be supporting local economies, respecting social justice and people's connection to place that extend far beyond the life of this country. um, And find a new way for us to live on this planet that maintains that health of the planet while also maintaining our own health. It's, it's finding our place in the, in that circle of life. Um, And, uh, you know, there's, I I know there's people who still think 30 by 30 is about marine protected areas and, and kicking people out um, of those areas. But I see so much possibility to learn from the people who are practicing Regenerative agriculture, restorative farming, sustainable fishing—they're all the people I've been learning from in the Salmon Nation Network, um, and. Amplify that, grow that, change the practices that aren't sustainable to be sustainable and to feed biodiversity while we're addressing climate change. So I'm really excited now about the possibilities. Um, we, we have started this Businesses for Conservation and Climate Alliance um, that I think can really be at the heart of driving that change and recognizing that um, it's not, you know, business or the environment. They have to come together together. Um, and I just find the people in, in Salmon Nation are, they're the leaders, you know, they're the people that are informing my evolving thinking on what we can make of this 30 by 30 and how it really does fulfill the promise of, of what's at the heart of Salmon Nation.
0: So for, uh, for those of us out here um, who don't have a complete grasp on what 30 by 30 is, could you just give us a Reader's Digest encapsulated version of what this proposal is, and then where we are at right now with that.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the the concept of protecting um, or conserving 30 to 50% of lands and waters has been part of international conversation for a while. And it was really introduced in this country last summer as part of a bill that used the word protect talked about excluding commercial extraction and other destructive uses from 30% of, in this case, it was specific to waters, but um, by 2030. So that's the 30 by 30. Uh, And then um, after a whole lot of communication and um, input from people all across the country into what 30 by 30 could be and should be. An executive order came out January 27th, so it's 14008, um, that came out from the Biden administration called the America the Beautiful Report. If you haven't read it, you should, because it's unlike any other federal report you've ever seen or imagined, um, where the language acknowledges how the sort of colonial approach we've had to this country and to Native people of this country and how how fundamental the change needs to be in our approach to place and each other to have a sustainable relationship with our planet, um, and sets out principles that include biodiversity and, and controlling climate change, but also maintaining local economies and, and respecting social justice as well as environmental justice. Um, so it, it, Opens up the possibility for a new path. It doesn't mandate. Doesn't create new statutory authorities. It just opens up the possibilities to think about, um, think about what's what what needs to change, and for communities and and. And communities of, of communities to come together and say, "Here's what we need," and it allows us to think outside of those boundaries you were talking about earlier—the the, um, the sort of superimposed boundaries from from. Management authorities, state, federal, regional—you know, this country, that country—to just think about ecosystems and how we start to take care of ecosystems in their whole. So, salmon to me are the are the best illustration. Salmon need healthy oceans. They also need healthy mountain streams and everything in between. So, to to trans transcend those jurisdictional boundaries to think big and to think at different levels about what conservation um, means and what our place in that needs to be.
0: Yeah. And salmon don't know, nor do they give a shit whether they're in Canadian or American waters. Right. It's, they're, they're, they're concerned about uh, cold, clean, healthy waters and um, bringing life back to those. Um, what, what can folks do to, what can we do to get involved? I mean, are we just, is it sort of a wait and see kind of thing? Are we, uh, are we, can we take any kind of action at this point? What, what's the current status of things?
1: Oh, absolutely take action. So our, I know the businesses for conservation and climate Alliance, we have provided the administration and people at, at, uh, so all the different, um, whether it's the Department of Interior, NOAA, all the different departments that are part of the federal government are being tasked to work together to accomplish these 30 by 30 goals. And we have been sharing initiatives that we consider fully ripe for action. So the Tungus, for example, reinstating the roadless rule, step number one, making sure we're we're restoring uh, where there's culverts that have failed that are blocking salmon passage, taking care of that, working with tribes to improve the the engagement of indigenous people in collecting data and stewarding resources near their towns, figuring out ways that those communities can be more engaged in harvesting locally, maintaining. Local economies while sustaining the health of the environment that supports them, learning from their long term stewardship of resources. Um, so, the Tungus is one of our first big focuses, lots of opportunity for people to participate as the there'll be a reopening of a public comment period, for example, on the roadless world. Bristol Bay is the other huge one that um, we are calling for long term protection of Bristol Bay and, and you know, no. That can uh, operate there without, you know, an unacceptable level of threat to this incredible salmon ecosystem of Bristol Bay, and then um, working also in the Pribilof Islands and where in the Bering Sea, where Indigenous people have a long-term history of stewardship, but are also seeing their opportunities curtailed. So there, there are places people can get involved federally but also if there's a place locally to someone whether they're in the west coast or elsewhere that they care about that they love that they want to save there's opportunities to start to identify what's appropriate in management in that place what's not appropriate and how to start to build um support behind uh management that that Allows those uses that are compatible with people's goals for biodiversity, for healthy economies, all the principles of the America the Beautiful Act, um, and how to exclude those that are not or change those that are not. And with our businesses for conservation, climate action, what we're looking to do is help uh, you know sort of bring together those communities that have ideas, help support them, convene the conveners, and then take that policy up through the to the highest level and work towards implementation but really it has to be a bottom-up approach it has to be community saying we have coalitions of people as you have in Bristol Bay you know as we've had here in the Tungus and we need this you know we need this done or we need this to happen or this to not happen this is what we want and then we want to support those communities in helping enact that.
0: So um, community, economy, businesses, seven generations. These are themes that I'm hearing and we'll, we're going to dig right into those and especially the community part in one second. But uh, for those of us out who um, in our audience who aren't familiar with the Tongass, uh, the Tongass is referring to the Tongass National Forest in Southeast Alaska. It's the largest contiguous temperate rainforest left on earth. And um highly recommend listening to the episode of this podcast with Richard Peterson uh, talking about just what a special place that is. Um, But coming right right down to the community aspect, one of the things that I read about and have talked to other people firsthand about the work you're doing, um, it just, it's darn near, it brought me to tears. And it was just this this uh, thing that you've created called Alaskan Zone. And, you know, it's gobsmacking to me that in the most prosperous nation the world has ever known, that there are people hungry every single night, there are children hungry every single day, and especially those that, you know, have not benefited from uh, this colonial economy that's been built. Um, can you speak to us about what your vision for Alaskan Zone is, and what your reach is, and where you're hoping to go with it?
1: Sure. Yeah. So Alaskan Zone grew out of you know learning that less than one percent of the fish caught off Alaska stays in Alaska, and hearing from people here in Sitka and all around the state that you know how do I get good Alaska fish? I don't feel like I have access. And just being so surprised that it was so, you know, people were buying imitation crab in the store instead of Alaska salmon or halibut. So we started a community-supported fisheries program, very, you know, built on the community-supported agriculture model. It was the first one in Alaska where people can buy a subscription and get fish from us each month. Um, We also then broadened to ship around the country because we, you know, sort of coordinating within Alaska was something that was in our reach. Starting to coordinate that kind of CFS subscription outside of Alaska was more difficult, but we can ship anywhere. Um, And we are, you know, our fish is coming from local fishermen, members of our organization. We know their commitment to keeping the resource healthy, to harvesting the highest quality, um, you know, taking extra care of the fish as well as of the resource and getting that to people along with information about how the fish was caught, and also some of the issues that are out there, say the Tungus and how they could weigh in on that, where they might wanna go to submit comments. And if all they want is to make sure they get the best possible fish that's sustainably harvested and some good recipes and stories about the fishermen, they can go just that far and that's that's great by us. But if they wanna take that next step and get involved with protecting Bristol Bay or making sure the Tungus stays stays healthy and unroaded. They we help them people have those opportunities and know how to how to be effective and find their voice in that way. Um, And then last year with the pandemic, we had the opportunity to really engage in um, getting salmon, doing big distributions of fish to um, people all around the country and also in the Pacific Northwest. So where there was need, we were able to distribute salmon for free, um, sometimes round, so whole fish, so people could, engage in traditional processing of that fish um, and sometimes fillets depending on what we're able to define. So to support the fishermen and to provide the fish to families in need. And we're looking to find funding. We're hoping um, we can moves USDA programs for example towards local and regional food distribution um, to support local economies while also meeting need uh, and do that in the long term because people were so appreciative of receiving food that was culturally appropriate and um, yeah just that they relish as part of this this region and that they're they have such a history and connection to. Um, so that's also part of our long-term vision for Alaskan zone.
0: It's beautiful. I I think I read, uh, like 400,000 meals distributed with, um, we actually
1: hit 600,000 by the uh, first part of this year.
0: Yeah. Wow. Wow. I know Ben Blakey was a part of that and, uh, Northline seafoods. And, uh, I, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I just was so emotionally uh, moved by, by this uh, work. And I know that's, um, that's been the impetus of what we've tried to do with Ava's wild too, is just bring awareness to Bristol Bay and then, you know, a dedicated percentage of money back to the region with, with purchasing the food from the region. And then also like kind of taking it as sacrament, like it's you're experiencing this region by taking these salmon into your body, they literally are part of the region. So I'm just, you know, utterly thrilled about it. I can't wait to find ways to collaborate and, uh, and build this even bigger and stronger.
1: Yeah, no, it's, I, I guess, um, I just am endlessly amazed by the, the natural world and the uh, complexity of the natural world, and uh, you know, you were talking before about trees and the mycelia and how they know to send sugar, more sugar to this place, and I, I feel like we understand one iota of that. Complexity, And yet our footprint is so huge on it. Um, and that to the extent we can start to learn more about those systems, start to feed ourselves with the local foods and local wisdom, we can start to understand how we sustain these systems and how we are more than, you know, the bull in the china shop sort of um, in our impact on this planet. And, um, yeah, I see the work of the coalitions in Bristol Bay and the coalitions here in on the Tungus, you know, Bering Sea, Priblough Island people, what you're doing with Eva's, Eva's Wild. It's, it's all a part of that, you know, as is Alaskan Zone. It's helping people hear the stories, understand that that complexity exists and that these salmon are sacred and what these salmon need to keep coming back. and. Um, giving us life as, you know, we need to give them life. So, yeah, it's a big challenge. It's a lot, but it's so it needed. Is,
0: <laughs> it is big. And that you're, you're reading my mind. That's exactly where I was going to start wrapping us up here was um, it, it seems overwhelming if you're just looking at the entirety of things. I mean, it's like walking into, I just did this walking into a storage facility and you, you know, you got to get it cleaned up cause there's stuff in the back you got to get to. And it's just like, where do I even put all this crap? Yeah. You know, it's like, it's just daunting. What is the best advice you can give young people or anybody really starting out who wants to make a difference in saving what they love?
1: Where would you tell them to begin? I would begin where your heart is, you know, what that place that you're passionate about. And it, it can be a city lot and you can transform that city lot into a garden that feeds local people or it could be, you know, a big uh, mountain range that you're passionate about. But But I think it has to be something that your heart is really invested in. Um, And then you need to listen. You need to learn from the system itself, from the place itself, and from the people who have older and more tested wisdom about how you are a steward and caretaker for that place.
0: That's perfect. I couldn't add one more thing. Um, Okay. So we're going to wrap this up with a quick bonus round here. And uh, if you've been listening to this show, you know that there's a series of three quick questions. But uh, they think they tell a lot about w- how you operate in this world. So here they go. Just say, knock on wood, it's not going to happen. But just if your house was on fire and you could get your family out, get your pets out. But if you could only take one physical thing, what would that thing be?
1: One physical thing. Um, maybe... My plants, <laughs> you know, the living things. I feel like the living things are what matter, right? And what you need to take with you. That's so awesome. I, I,
0: I mean, this is so synergistic. This conversation because uh, I've been I'm reading this book, The Hidden Life of Trees. Please uh, yeah. pick it up. If, yeah, you, you know, uh, if you haven't out there read it, it's it's fantastic. You'll never look at another tree again, and that's why I keep talking about it. But I was looking around our living room last night and I was looking at all the plants and I was like, huh, I think I understand now why people talk to plants. <laughs> you, you know, there's something happening there. Yeah. And so I think that's a wonderful answer. Okay. Now, more on a sort of metaphysical level here, um, two traits that you could pull out of the fire about you that make you, you, if you can only take two.
1: I don't give up easy. Uh, And I'm very grateful.
0: Those are both (laughs) self-evident. And lastly, um, is there anything that you would leave in the fire to be burned up or purified?
1: Oh boy. A lot. (laughs) 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 Uh, I can, you know, I can forget to listen. I can talk too much. That would be the first one. Um, Yeah. And just, you know, the, the, overwhelming urge to think or believe that you know more than you do. I I think that's what I would give up and that's what I have to work at all the time. And that's what I keep learning more and more, how little I know, I guess. Uh, So yeah, more work to be done there.
0: Amen. I, boy, I struggle all the time with that. Keep it, keep it down here. Yeah. Keep walking. Salvatore Ambulando. Um, You're, you're a fantastic, uh, friend and uh con- conversationalist and i'm so glad we had a chance to connect today can't wait until we uh get to hang out again in sitka or down here for that matter we're we're all in salmon nation and you know it's all kind of connected so for for today is there anything else you wanted to um leave us with or is there a way that folks can check out the work you're doing
1: um, well, first off, thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And I really look forward to bringing all our Salmon Nation people back together again, too. Um, but I guess if people want to learn more about our work, we have, I think, some great information on our website. So our Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association, you can Google that and find it, or our Alaska Sustainable Fisheries Trust, the alaskatrust.org um, Alaskan Zone you can also find online and um, you know we always are looking for new um, subscribers to our community supportive fisheries program or, or people to place orders with us but um, even more so people to get involved and help um, save what save what they love and help us save what we love
0: Amen to that. Linda Bankin, thank you for joining us today, and uh, we will see you down the trail. Thank you, Mark. How do you say what you love?
1: How do you say
0: what you love? Thank you for listening to Save What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.